Erev Tov, everybody. Welcome to another edition of our Thursday night Parashat Shavua class. Tonight's shiur is sponsored and dedicated by Mr. and Mrs. Leon and Marie Ben Shabo. In memory of his mother, Mrs. Luna Ben Shabo, Zichronali Bracha, Tei Nafshat Rabbi Srora Hayim. With the words of Torah that we say tonight, bring an aliyah to her neshama. Bezrat Hashem. Tonight I want to share with you a beautiful insight on Parashat Va'era that we are studying by Harav Gaon Adin Even Yisrael Steinsalt, a tremendous Tamid Chacham that passed away this past year, an author, a philosopher, a commentator, one of the great shining lights of Klal Yisrael in the last generation what he produced in terms of his books and his commentary, studied by hundreds of thousands of Jews. Tonight's words are from one of his sefarim that he wrote on the Parashat Shavua, and it speaks specifically about Paro, Paro's character. The narrative of the first third of Sefer Shemot, the book of Shemot, right until Parashat Beshalach, is a confrontation, let's call it, a protracted confrontation between God and Paro. In this respect, it could be said that the central character of these parashiot is not really Moshe Rabbeinu, but one can argue it is Paro Melech Misraim. Moshe fulfills his role as God's messenger, conducting himself very clearly, very consistently, doing what he was supposed to do. By contrast, however, Paro's character is much more complex, engaging our interests, raising various questions about how he conducts himself. One of the basic questions about Paro's character is why. Why after suffering blow after blow, makkah after makkah, does he not respond? Yes, the Torah states, that Hashem hardened Paro's heart. Still, it raises the question of what underlies this whole situation. Why does he not respond? The famous Katzker Rebbe used to say that he actually respects Paro. Here was a man who was struck by the plagues of Mitzrayim and nevertheless stubbornly upheld his principles. And this characterization of Paro not only explains the question of his surprising behavior, but also sheds light on many, many other antagonists in the Torah as well. In the confrontation between Moshe and Paro, we would love to feel that we are on the side of Moshe Rabenu. But the truth is, and if you stop to think about this for a moment, most people would probably realize that they relate more to Paro. Moshe and Aharon are lofty characters. 
they are in direct contact with God. Paro, in terms of his personality, is more or less an ordinary human being. That's who he is. To be sure, not everyone is capable of decreeing that every boy is born shall throw into the Nile or opposing God stubbornly. But in terms of basic inner tendencies, Paro's decisions seem very understandable from the human psyche. In this respect, the wicked characters of the Torah uh, are no, no less and perhaps even more fascinating than the tzaddikim, than the righteous ones. When we study the Rasha'im, we can understand them much more fully than we understand the tzaddikim. It may be that some who study the Torah feel that they can relate to the Nevi'im and the prophets, but let's face it, there's a big difference between feeling this way and actually fully comprehending what a nevuah, a prophecy, entails and what it's all about. In the case of the rasha, of the wicked, it's undoubtedly easier for us to understand what motivates such a person, such a personality. So Paro's character and essential nature are much more significant for us and it's important for us to understand his mode of conduct and his responses specifically to the, this episode of Yesiyat Mitzrayim. After the first plagues, Paro already appears to be shaken and he humbles himself when he faces Moshe Rabbeinu, but the alarm that seizes him is not in the first plagues, but actually the last plague mentioned in this week's parasha, the plague of hail. The alarm that sounded in the plague of hail is much more significant. The Torah tells us that Paro sent and called for Moshe and Aaron after the plague of Barad, and these are his words. Chatati hapa'am. I have sinned this time. Hashem HaTzadik, God is righteous, va'ani ve'ami harshaim, and I and my people are wicked. Now, Paro's shock here in this statement is understandable, considering that he lives in Mitzrayim, where hail is a very rare occurrence. When the hail falls, it's probably likely the first time in his life he's ever seen such a thing. Alachat kama kama, like Rashi explains that there was fire in the hail, all the more so. There's no doubt it makes a great impression on Paro. And when the hail is accompanied by thunder and lightning, you can imagine the emotions that he's going through at the time. But it's his response on this occasion that is essentially different from all of his other previous responses. What does he mean when he says, Chatati hapam, I have sinned this time. Hashem atzadik, God is righteous. Ve'ani ve'amiyar shaim, and I and my people are wicked. What is he talking about? When we follow the confrontation between Paro and Hashem, we see that at least on the surface, it looks like a negotiation. It starts off that Paro receives a proposal to let the Jewish people have a three-day vacation in order to celebrate a holiday in 
the Midbar, in the desert. Paro, of course, he's not thrilled with the idea, and he flatly rejects the proposal. And this creates a confrontation. But it's still limited. It's an obstacle that we find in pretty much every negotiation. If, the, uh, if one side agrees right away, then it's not really a negotiation. But it's clear that part of the significance of the leave, the vacation mm-hmm. that Moshe Rabbeinu is demanding from Paro is very symbolic. Nowadays, certain countries prohibit the waving of flags of various countries. The demand to leave Egypt and celebrate a Chag Lashem, a holiday for God in the desert, is not just a demand for a three-day vacation, Rabotai. It's a fundamental demand for recognition that the Jewish people have a certain degree of independence. It's a symbolic demand. Who is really in charge here? And these actions can lead to strikes and wars and revolutions, even today. Paro realizes this. And in the interest of preserving his reign and his sovereignty over Klal Israel, Moshe's request is a non-starter. Sorry, this is not happening. Mm-hmm. But despite the fundamental significance of this proposal to go on leave, and although this confrontation seems very protracted, at this stage it's a normal feature of a negotiation process. But following the rejection, Moshe and Aaron returned to Paro, this time conveying God's demand to let the people go. And when Paro refuses, Hashem inflicts a plague upon Misraim until he finally relents. However, like anyone who has participated again in a negotiation process knows that concessions are often followed by immediate regret. And Paro reneges on his promise to free the people repeatedly, sometimes refusing outright, sometimes uh, uh, hedging that allowance with unreasonable conditions, but never agreeing to the terms that he accepted earlier. After the plague of hail, Paro expresses remorse in a way that seems very striking. What caused him to say at that moment, God is righteous and I and, and, I and my people are wicked? In a way, Paro's remorse evokes that of the evil king Ahav after Eliyahu Navi rebukes him. Ahav rips his clothing, the Navi tells us in Sefer Melachim. He puts sackcloth on his body. He fasts. He lays in, uh, in, in, in clothing and ash and he walks subdued. This is Ahav, the evil king. But the difference is when Ahab shows remorse for his sins, it's for very specific sins that he did, for the Avodah Zarah and all the other horrendous things he, he, he accomplished or he did in his life. He truly has reason to be remorseful. So he acts like that. Ahab's admission of sin is justified, whereas Paro, whereas Moshe Sari says nothing to Paro about, about the distress he caused the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu is not giving rebuke He's not giving tochacha to Paro. All that he demands of Paro is, let my people go. That's all he wants. So why does Paro say, all of a sudden, I've sinned this time. 
I and my people are wicked. What is the sin that he's referring to? So, Rav Steinseltz, like I said at the beginning, what we're saying tonight is from him. He has a, an amazing chidush and for sure a lesson in life. Parod does not grow up as an ordinary person, but rather he grows up as the king of Mitzrayim. And consequently, he grows up under the assumption that he himself is no less than a god. Now, this assumption is not a matter of something abstract. It's bound up within the, the premise of his life. And it's bound up within the basic way that he views the world around him. When a person grows up under the impression that he is a god, then this actually paints an understanding of the nature of justice. And whatever he wants is by definition what justice is and the way things have to work out. And if there's anyone or anything in this world that is just, it's me as, as a God. So in the course of the ten plagues, Paro goes through a process of change that is, fundament, that is a fundamental conception of who he was and that change now reverts into something new. A process that reaches the climax when? During the plague of hail, the plague of Barad. His confrontation with Moshe Rabbeinu leads him to discover for the first time in his life that he is not infallible. That perhaps mm -hmm. he is the one who is acting improperly. He is exposed to this idea for the first time. And for someone like him, this comes as a great shock. Because it shatters the foundations of his life, of everything he grew up thinking about. When Paro reaches his conclusion, it's not just theoretical knowledge. He's now forced to adopt a new lifestyle, a new attitude. He has to re-examine and reassess all of his past actions. Before Paro's epiphany at this time, he, was, he had no problem saying, every boy who is born we're going to throw into the water and we're going to kill him. Without suffering any pangs of conscience, who cares? As far as he was concerned, if, they, if he wanted them to drown, they drowned. If he wanted them to die, they died. If he wanted them to be killed, then they were killed. Everything he wanted was automatically defined, justified, as just and good. No qualms whatsoever. Only when Paro's basic premise that I am right, that I am always right, when that premise was shattered, does he gain the ability to evaluate and assess things as they are? And only then can his self-assessment change. And because of this, Paro's remorse does not end simply with, I did not act properly in this case. I was wrong. This, rem this is a remorse that shatters his whole value system. This is why he includes in his confession something that seems out of place. He says, I have sinned this time. And not only that, but I and my people are wicked. Why does he add I and my people? Because now Paro's thoughts go way back. It goes back many years. For the first time it occurs to him that maybe, just maybe, his whole life was a great lie. So this remorse is not just something that transpired between him and Moshe Rabbeinu, 
but rather it returns to the root of the matter. Hundreds of years back, it returns to the order for the Jewish people to collect the straw, the order to drown the firstborn sons, and the order for the embittered enslavement of Am Yisrael. The basic feeling of I am always right, which kept Paro from any kind of soul-searching, is not a phenomenon that relates to him alone. In this regard, Paro is just an extreme example of an ordinary person. Granted, yes, an ordinary person does not grow up under the same circumstances as Paro. An ordinary person does not commit the same atrocities and the same sins. An ordinary person does not think the way Paro thinks. But despite all these differences and distinctions, Rabotai, Paro is still fundamentally an ordinary person. And the real obstacle to remorse, harata, and the possibility of teshuvan repentance is always the same, both in its extreme expression in the case of the parom and its more um, simple expression in the case of an ordinary person. Yechezkel in his sefer also cites in the name of parom, not the parom of Mitzrayim, but a different parom who says, Mine is my Nile, and I have made myself great which, in essence, Paro is saying, I am the world's epitome of perfection. And this is how Paro formulates the idea. But it exists, although in a sub, sub, more subtle form, in the mind of every person. And only when a person frees himself from this ideology, from this way of thinking, does the gateway to Harata open up for him. It, will the process of Teshuvah be that much more easy? So Paro's experience exists as well in other people's experiences. As a result of repenting, of doing teshuvah for a certain act, they suddenly discover a new way of thinking about life, with a, a, a life with a, with a totally different significance. And therefore, in such a case, the teshuvah is not limited to the matter that prompted it, not just that one action, it's no longer about that, just that anymore. It's now broadened. It has implications for a person's whole life. Paroz Kharata and Teshuvah, both in its scope and it's an attempt to get to the roots of the sin, need to teach us a fundamental lesson. Remorse Kharata is never a simple matter. Even when a person expresses regret and he wants to do Teshuvah, there are liable to be basic problems with that Kharata, with that remorse. And with the implementation of the Teshuvah. And that is why Paro's case is a perfect example of complete remorse. One basic problem with remorse is the question of its sincerity. There's a well known saying the wicked are full of regrets. The simple meaning of this is that even a completely wicked person is not at peace with his sins. And he too has moments where he feels regret and wants to repent. But why does the saying say full of regrets in plural? Why is it the wicked are full of regrets? Why not just full of regret? Well, one explanation is that the wicked are full of many regrets because no matter how many times they have regret, it's never true regret. There's a humorous quote, sometimes attributed to Mark Twain. Many of you may have heard it before. Mark Twain was once quoted saying, to cease smoking 
is the easiest thing I've ever did. I ought to know because I've done it a thousand times. Similarly, the Rishaim are full of regrets. The wicked person has remorse, but he knows that he's going to revert to his evil ways. And in another week or two, he's going to have remorse again for the same matter, but even stronger. Thus, it turns out that his life is just full of regrets for usually the same thing. And between each instance of remorse, he reverts back to the very behavior that caused the remorse in the first place. The Gemara tells us in Masechet Yoma, if a person commits a sin and repeats it, it becomes to him as if it was permissible, as if it was mutat. Regarding Teshuvah as well, there can be an, an equally dangerous, dangerous predicament where someone is caught in a cycle of remorse and Teshuvah followed by a return to sin, followed by remorse once again. When a person does Teshuvah for the first time, it makes an impression. But when he does Teshuvah twice or five times for the, five sin, for the same sin, Teshuvah becomes something that's meaningless. It becomes a meaningless procedure. We're still encouraged to do it, obviously. But one that is repeated over and over again, when nothing actually changes, that means we're doing something wrong in the process of our Teshuvah. That's one problem of remorse. Another problem with remorse and Teshuvah is sometimes a person is truly penitent. He does Teshuvah from the bottom of the heart, but the Teshuvah is misplaced. He focuses on the wrong part of the transgression. There's a Hasidic story about a woman who came to a Rebbe to seek repentance, Teshuvah. What did she do wrong? She ate on the fast of Asara Betevet. The 10th of Tevet, we just commemorated that fast. So she went to the Rebbe to seek Teshuvah because she ate during that fast. After listening to her talk about her sin, the Rebbe began to tell her a story about a Jew who took over for a priest. And a farmer came to uh, confess before him, as they do in, uh, in Christianity, and told him that uh, the farmer told this uh, Jew that he stole a piece of rope. And the Jew asked him, under what circumstance did you steal the rope? And the farmer said, well, you see, the rope was tied to a cow. And since I also stole the cow, the rope was stolen together with it. So the Jew then asked the farmer, what else happened? So the farmer continued relating the story that the owner of the cow noticed the theft and tried to resist. He tried to hold me back. So when the Jew then asked the farmer, what did you do after that? The farmer said, I killed him. I killed the owner of the cow. So when the Jew heard this, he could no longer contain himself and he cried, you killed him? How could you kill him? And then the Rebbe looks at the woman and shouted at her, You killed someone! And the woman fainted in shock. It turned out that this woman had given birth to a child outside of wedlock and strangled him, and covered up for the incident. But she came to the Rebbe to seek teshuvah, repentance, for having mistakenly eaten on Asara Betevet and ended up revealing her guilt in a far more crazy manner. So now, this story, although it's an extreme example, this is a problem that many people encounter in their lives. 
a person can work towards self-improvement, can work towards serichan, kapara, atonement, but if he does not get to the heart of the problem, he will think that it's just enough to rectify a specific point, but the essential problem still exists. The benefit of the teshuvah would be just temporary. It would be local. A similar problem exists among those people who go uh, for cancer treatment. It's usually very simple for a surgeon to remove the, the, the cancerous growth. But it's far more complicated to determine whether that growth is a, is a product of another growth that still remains in the person's body. And if any growth remains, the treatment's not going to succeed. It's a great accomplishment for a person to admit, I have sinned. Hatati, I have sinned this time. But there's a higher level. There's a higher level when a person's soul searching digs down deep inside of him to the point that he declares, Hashem HaTzadik, God is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Now the remorse of Paral reaches way back, 300 years, because he understands that his sin does not begin in the present moment. He had to return to the root of the matter. The thoroughness of Paral's remorse can also be found, actually, in the Torah's description of confession and atonement in Sefer Vaikra. One of the central Pesukim over there reads, that they will confess for their sins and the sins of their fathers. At first glance, it's very difficult to understand why the sins of the fathers are relevant. Obviously, the sinner has to confess his own sins, but why should he confess those of his fathers? This point is very, very essential to our vidui that's even included in the vidui of Aseret Yemet Teshuvah. And for we Sefaradim here, we include this in our daily vidui. We say every single day, Shachrit and Mincha, Aval Chatanu, Anachnu Vavotenu. But we have sinned, we and our fathers. If you go back, if you check out the podcast, Shabbat Shuvah Drashai spoke about this statement of aval chatanu, the, the meaning of the word aval. Check it out if you have a, t- a, a moment. It's, it was a powerful class. But we say, anachnu we and our fathers, we and our fathers have sinned. Here too, the same question arises. What do we want from our fathers? Why drag our fathers into a confession of our own sins? The vidui is for me. The point is that when remorse, when harata and teshuvah is sincere, it penetrates to the roots of things, where it reaches a person's entire value system in its full scope. When a person looks at himself, it's easy for him to reach the conclusion that on the whole, yeah, I'm not such a bad guy. I'm an okay person. But that outlook eliminates the possibility of really true, thorough haratan teshuvah. Sometimes a person looks not at himself, but he looks at his father and his grandfather, rationalizing that since there are areas that I'm better than my father in, it must be that I'm pretty good. I'm doing okay. I'm a tzaddik. They're the problem. The formula of 
אבל חטאנו אנחנו ואבותינו, we and our fathers have sinned, expresses that I, the idea that sometimes a person must confess not only for his own sins, but for that of his father and grandfather and his ancestors before that. When a person engages in a comprehensive cheshbon nefesh comprehensive teshuvah, he needs to consider the possibility that his whole life, yes, his whole life might have been full of bad decisions. He can't just evaluate his actions within the, the framework uh, of, of, the, of the value system, but he has, to evalu- he has to evaluate the value system itself. Not just what did I do based on my beliefs. What are my beliefs? Are they right or are they wrong? And when a person goes back to the very roots of that, then he sees a completely different picture. And all of a sudden, the whole system takes upon itself a different character completely. And this is what Paro understands when he says, Ani ve'ami arashayim. Me and my nation are wicked. It often doesn't occur to us to question the broader scheme of things. Sometimes a person feels that something is nagging him. A sense, he gets a sense that something is wrong in his life. But he can't pinpoint what it is. He can't pinpoint what that trouble is because he can't look beyond what's actually in front of him. He doesn't even raise the question of whether or not the entire framework of his life might need to be overhauled, changed. Where does such an attitude come from? When the big picture of a person's life with its problems and deficiencies is acceptable to him, then... True remorse and true teshuvah is absolutely impossible. If a person presupposes that his current way of life is how things should be, then he can no longer have full remorse. He'll have uh, you know, a little bit of teshuvah for local problems, but he's not really getting to the underlying issue. That's not to say that it's not important to perfect even the minor details in a person's life, There's great value into this. We have to work on every little detail, no question. But if someone asks whether whether or not the knot of the tefillin is touching my tefillin, and if it's not, oh my God, I'm going crazy, where he fails to realize that the entire parchment inside the tefillin is empty and all erased, then it's a sign that he doesn't see things in the proper perspective. In the story of the Eser Makot, Paro goes through a life-changing ordeal. He suddenly experiences thunder and lightning, the likes of which he has never experienced in his life. Strange things are falling from the heaven, ice filled with fire. He is seized with terror. He begins to think for the first time in his life that maybe, just maybe, I am not a god. And at that moment, something opens up for him and he asks himself, what have I done with my entire life. Someone came up to me today, and uh, uh, I think he's he's on this chat, on this call listening right now, and he gave me a great chidush in the name of the Ben Ishai. And he said, Ben Ishai says, why couldn't Paro just tell Moshe Rabbeinu, your time's not up? Moshe says to Paro, you know, let my people go. Paro could have said, I don't know what you're talking about, Moshe. Your God said you have to be here 400 years. It's not 400 years yet. That would have ended the whole negotiation. So Ben Ishai says, 
Simple. You didn't believe in God. You didn't believe in God. You, you can't use that excuse if you didn't believe in God. Because he himself was a God. The whole world surrounded among, uh, upon his decisions. Because he was the center. He was the nucleus. And therefore there was no Hashem. But all of a sudden here, the whole everything opens up for him. When, when there's no rational way of understanding what's happening around him, seeing his country demoralized, destroyed in a matter of months, the wealthiest empire on earth left to rubble, no animals, no produce, no grain, no food, what's happening? All of a sudden, yes, that's what he asks himself. What have I done with my life? And only, only then, only when a person can stop and look back, realizes his mistake, but not just that one mistake, and look back and say, I've lived 20 years, I've lived 30 years, 40, 50, 60. What have I done? Was I right? Or was I not right? When the basic conceptions like those of Paro are shattered and a person says, oh my gosh, I got to do something different and everything suddenly seems different, then it becomes possible to start again from the beginning. It's at that point where you can finally say, Hashem HaTzadik. Yes, Hashem is the only righteous one here. He's the one that is in control, not me, no matter what I thought before. This was a turning point for Paro at this, uh, at this stage. Uh, and this is maybe why we're left with a cliffhanger until next week. And uh, yes, Paro had to keep on going and there were still a few more plagues left. But no question, if anything, if Paro can do it, Lokosha can, we can, in our efforts to come closer to, to God, in our efforts to increase our Yirat Shamaim, our fear of heaven, a fear of God, a fear of sin. This is things that we need to take upon ourselves. And you don't have to be embarrassed. You can be the greatest Tamit Chacham. You can be a person that never kept one mitzvah in his life. It's the ability to stop and think and gauge what you've accomplished in life, whether or not you felt you're on the right path, and where you have turned off the path. And when you ask yourself those big questions, when you ask yourself, what have you done good and what have you done that needs to be improved? Then your charata and then your teshuvah has so much more meaning to it. And Bezat Hashem, when we start thinking like that, a lot greater things will happen to, to us, to our, uh, our family, and uh, of course, our descendants. Uh, our, our children, our grandchildren will look up and remember and say, you know what? My father, my grandfather, he lived a life like no, no one else. He understood what it meant to be close to Hashem. He didn't take anything for granted. He aimed for perfection, even though we're not perfect. All we are are ordinary human beings. And that's why it's so difficult to reach these levels. But Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us that Ezra, He gives us that Siyata Dishmaya to get to those levels. And through that, will be zocher to the ultimate geula, the geula that we wait for, the coming of Mashiach, Amen. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. Kol tup.